Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software. Today's program is brought to you in part by the financial support of our listeners. You can support the show on a one-time basis by sending a donation to Adam Graham, P.O. Box 15913. That's P.O. Box 15913, Boise, Idaho, 83715. You can also become one of our ongoing Patreon supporters for as little as $2 per month by going to patreon.greatdetectives.net. Now it's time for this week's episode of Dragnet. The original air date, December the 1st, 1949, and the title is The Spring Street Gang. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes, best of long cigarettes, brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to Juvenile Bureau. A rash of crimes has broken out in your city. Suspicion points to an organized gang of juveniles. Your job, stop them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Sunday, March 27th. It was windy in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of Georgia Street Juvenile Bureau. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way up from the Juvenile Bureau, and it was 11.25 p.m. when I got to the receiving hospital, room 5, the treatment room. Everything happens on Sunday nights, eh, Joe? Yeah. How's the kid making out, Doc? One arm is cut up badly. Nothing fatal, though. How'd it happen? That's what I'd like to find out. Can I talk to him? If you want, don't press him, though. He's had a bad shot. All right. (laughs) Officer here to talk to you, son. I can't. Tell him I can't talk, please. Just a few routine questions, Sam. You're going to have to answer them sooner or later. Please, can't you see what's happened already? I can't tell you anything. Jack Monroe, is that your real name? Yeah. How old are you? I'll be 16 next July. Where do you live? I can't tell you. You know that. Now, let me alone, will you? Let me alone. You've been running around with that gang of kids on Spring Street, haven't you? The big timers, isn't that what they call themselves? I don't know anything about it. 
believe me. I can't talk. You tipped us off about the burglary they were going to pull tonight. Is that where they knifed you? Look, will you believe me? I can't tell you anything. Not anything. Please. He's still shaky, Joe. All right, Doc. Well, Jack, we'll talk about it later when you feel better. You see what they've done to me already? They said next time they'd kill me. Juvenile Bureau, Friday. Yeah. Yeah, okay, friend. Goodbye. How'd you make out, Joe? Not very good, Ben. Captain Bowling, come in yet? You checked in while you were gone, wants to see us. Okay. Did the kid tell you who knifed him? No, I scared him good. He wouldn't tell me a thing. You got a line on the boy's parents, Friday? I got a hold of his father. He's on his way in. How's the boy? Bad knife wounds. Nothing fatal. You know the boy? Not till this afternoon, Captain. He tipped us off about a burglary a gang of young kids were supposed to pull tonight. You go through? No, but two hours ago, this Monroe kid was found in a vacant lot down on Olympic, cut up pretty bad. The gang must have pegged him. How long is it going to take you to break that up? Well, we're just starting to get a line on him, Bob. Must be nearly a hundred in that gang. And everyone up working hard. Take a look at the pin map over here. The spot here, look at it. All the jobs pulled during the last month, huh? The last five weeks up to date. Red tabs for burglary, must be more than a hundred. The robberies, green pens, count them, at least fifty. These five more orange ones I added for the weekend, auto thefts. You bet those kids are working hard. We got a lead on them. That's more than we had last week. You have to push it harder. Here's the big reason. This uh, line of pins, the brown and black. Purse snatchings. Purse snatching and rape, 26 of them in the past five weeks. They're pretty well concentrated in one area here. That's right. Now, what's the lead you're working on? Right there on the pen map, Captain. Huh? Well, these two blocks here, Bob, where Franco Alley intersects Spring Street. Well, what about it? Well, it's the only clear area for a dozen blocks around. There's not a colored pin on it, you see? Yeah. Now, all the rest of the pins, the robberies, burglaries, attacks, they all seem to branch out from this same spot right here in definite patterns, Franco Alley and Spring Street. You figure that's the focal point for the gang? Well, it's got all the mark. For instance? Oh, we've been checking that neighborhood for a week. We got it narrowed down to one place. Right on the corner of Franco and Spring. What is it? It's a soda fountain. It's pretty typical. Only it stays open all night and it gets a pretty good play from kids. It's a regular hangout, Captain. Pretty tough youngsters. None of them over 18. Who runs the place? A guy named Eddie Ramsey, small-time con man. Had a run-in with him when we worked bunco detail. I remember the name. Smart mouth. Tried to give us trouble when we talked to some kids in there last night. He's got a place set up for him in the back of the store, kind of a club room. It sounds like a good lead. What are you doing about it? Well, just a minute. Captain Bowling. Yeah? Who? Yeah, we'll be right down. The Monroe kid, his father's downstairs, cursing every one of us. What's his problem? Can't understand how his boy got into trouble. Come on, Ben, let's tell him. What kind of a city do we have when we can't allow our children out on the street without being stabbed or shot? What's our great police force doing when this is going on? I'd like an answer if you got one. I demand an answer. We got an answer for you, Mr. Monroe. Will you sit down? My boy's lying in there in that hospital bed, cut to pieces. What did you do to prevent it? Tell me. You tell us, Mr. Monroe. What would you do to prevent it? I'm no cop. That's your job. I pay my taxes and I help pay your salary. We look out for your kids, but we don't raise them. That's what you're talking about. Just a minute, Mr. Monroe. Answer me this. How old is your son, Jack? He's 16, I think. Why? 
You know what he does with his spare time? Where he spends his nights? Of course I do. He's at home. Some nights he goes to the library. Then you don't know much about your son, Mr. Monroe. For the past month, four nights out of five, he's been hanging around with a gang down at a soda fountain on Spring Street. He's down there as late as 2 a.m. He says he goes to the library. How do I know? I'm a busy man. Did you know that your son is mixed up with that gang? He's not mixed up with a gang. A bunch of small-time thieves, but they're growing. They started with purse snatching, breaking in parked cars, burglarizing candy stores. You don't know what you're talking about. Wait a minute, please. And then they took up robbery, stealing cars, beating up girls, women, attacking them. You're crazy. Jack's not that kind. He's part of that gang, and right now we hold all of them responsible. My boy wouldn't do anything like that. He's a member of that gang, he told us. They're the ones that knifed him tonight. That's a lie. Jack's not mixed up with anything like that. You believe anything you want, Mr. Monroe. We're going to protect your boy as much as we can, but don't expect us to raise him for you. Now, you better take a free piece of advice. You keep your advice. Jack's not in this. You can't prove he is. We're not out to prove anything right now. But you catch up with that boy of yours. Keep him off the streets before it's too late. Are you threatening me? No, sir, advising you. Next time we might meet at the morgue. <laughs> 1 a.m. Monday, March 28th. A detail of 50 officers from Juvenile Bureau and Metropolitan Division were deployed for 16 blocks along Figueroa Street. At five minutes past one, they started to move south over an appointed area. In the space of half an hour, 18 young kids, none of them over 17 years old, were picked up off the streets and brought to the second floor at 1335 Georgia Street, the Juvenile Bureau. Four of the youngsters were girls. At 1.45 a.m., Ben and I checked the soda fountain on the corner of Franco Alley and Spring Street. Same bunch, Joe. Business as usual. Yeah, come on. Hey, Teddy, the folks. They're back again. Same guys. Go back and tell Eddie. Hey, look, why do you guys have to keep tracking us, huh? You think we were crooks or something. You were here the last time we checked in, Teddy. You ever go home? Sure, when I'm tired. I ain't tired. What's the matter? That's your money on the table there. Sure, it's my money. You want to borrow a buck? (laughs) Twenty-eight dollars. That's a lot of money for a boy your age. You keep pretty late hours, son. You have to go to school in the morning? Maybe. I can sit here, can't I? It's free country. I'm drinking coffee. You gonna make me on that? Hmm? (laughs) You've been drinking more than coffee. Where's your driver's license? Every time the same thing. There. March 10th, 1933, 16 years old. Are they giving you trouble, Ted? Eddie's on his way out. What's your name? Jones. Clyde Jones. Huh, Ted? (laughs) Sure. He's got money, too. Rich family. (laughs) You can save the smart talk, boys. Any of your pals in the back room? Uh, What's the trouble now, Sergeant? How many times a week do we get a checkup? Go ahead, Eddie. Read them off. We told you the last time, Ramsey. Clean up your place here or we'll ride your back till you do. I told you the last time, Sergeant, there's nothing wrong with my place. It's almost 2 o'clock in the morning. You've got a dozen underage kids hanging around here doing nothing. Some of them have been drinking. Schoolboys. Better to have them in here than hanging around outside in the street. I keep an eye on them. You're not the guardian, Ramsey. This time of night, they've got no business in here or on the street alone. That's your opinion, huh? That's the law, Ramsey. Now, either you shut down that back room and keep these kids out of here late at night, or we'll go after your license. You don't scare me, Sergeant. <laughs> you can't prove a thing. A couple of these kids have juvenile records. They're on probation. We can tag you for contributing. You still don't scare me. Now, why don't you leave the kids alone? That's right, Eddie. Read them off. Ben, get Benson and Bell. Right, Joe. If you won't clean up your place, Ramsey, we'll do it for you. Yeah? What are you going to do? We're pulling these boys in, all of them. Ah! 
2.25 a.m. Monday, March 28th. The dragnet operation had netted 30 juveniles, 26 boys, 4 girls. 24 of the children were between the ages of 16 and 17. They were lodged in the assembly room at the Georgia Street Juvenile Bureau. The other half dozen were 13 and 15-year-olds. They were taken to the juvenile hall at 1369 Henry Street. At 2.43 a.m., we met with Captain Bowling. They all checked in, 30 of them. All right, in the morning we filed petitions to have every one of these cases brought to the attention of the juvenile court. Make a note of it. Okay, Bob. For the kids with records, ask for detention from the probation department. Right, we'll call their parents in the morning. Call them now, they've got some explaining to do. By 6 a.m., all but three of the children's parents had shown up. To most of them, it was nothing new. Their kids had been there before, they'd be there again. They took the lecture from the juvenile officers calmly. As long as it didn't mean trouble for them, they wouldn't worry. When they got their children home, they would reprimand them. Not for running the streets, but for being picked up by the police. Ben and I had seen the cycle of the young criminals start before, a hundred times over. It had a lot of different endings. Most of them sour. During the next week that followed, we booked an average of a dozen juvenile delinquents every night. The clampdown continued, so did the crime wave. Ten burglaries, four robberies, eight car thefts, six person etchings, three assaults on women. One week's work. Picked up a new angle on Ramsey today, Captain. He might be fencing for the game. Who gave you the tip-off? One of our informants. Ramsey's brother lives out in the valley. He's supposed to be pushing this stuff. You check him out? Yeah, couldn't get a thing on him. Well, it might explain what attracts the kids to that soda fountain. It explains those $20 bills the kids are flashing. They steal and rob, and then they sell the loot to Ramsey for nothing. Another thing... Ramsey keeps his place open all night, and there's no reason to. He doesn't get that much trade. It's only from the young gang that hangs around there. You question the kids. How do they account for having all that money? Well, most of them say Ramsey lends it to them. They say they pay him back a little at a time. I think he's fencing for the kids. Have you tried to get his license? No luck, Captain. We can't prove a thing against him. Then we'll do it the hard way. Sweat it out. That night, we drove out to Ramsey Soda Fountain and asked him again to clean up his place, to keep the young kids out after 10 o'clock at night, to stop lending them money. He refused. There was nothing we could do. His business was a public place. He could not be held responsible for any of his patrons. In the next 10 days that followed, Ben and I haunted the sidewalk outside the soda fountain. We questioned every youngster as they entered and left. We made more than a dozen arrests. Many of the kids had been drinking heavily. We found some of them under the influence of narcotics. But Ramsey was still in the clear. The crime wave continued sporadically. Ben and I waited for our chance. It was a long time coming. Thursday, April 14th, we had dinner at Johnny Coken's place, and it was 10.35 p.m. when we checked back in at the office. Hot shot, grab it, Joe. Yeah. The terminal on Market Street, a 459 and shooting. The terminal on Market Street, a 459. Let's go. He was approximately five feet four inches tall, 125 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes, slight build, fair complexion. He was wearing blue jeans and a corduroy jacket. We found him between a row of packing cases at the rear of the warehouse at Terminal and Market Streets. There was a single bullet hole on his forehead just above the left eye. There was a 38 revolver near his right hand. The watchman told us how it happened. He broke in the back of the warehouse, Sergeant. He wanted to shoot it out with me. Here's his ID card. Fell out of his pocket. Teddy Cameron, age 15. Dear God, a kid. I didn't know, Sergeant. He didn't either. He thought he was grown up. 
are listening to Dragnet for the solution to an actual case from official police files. Los Angeles Police Department, Form 311, Dead Body Report. Type, gunshot. DR number, 437-695. Victim, Theodore Cameron. Residence address, 960 Charter Street. Date and time of death, Thursday, April 14th, 10.35 p.m., Place, Terminal and Market Streets, South State Warehouse. Cause of death, gunshot. Motive or reason, attempted burglary. Time discovered, 10.40 p.m. Removed to County Morgue. Discovered by Carl Hyber, night watchman. Identified by... Barbara Cameron, sister. Description of victim, male, Caucasian, age 15, height, weight, so on so on. Occupation, student, descent, English, and so on. Witness, signed Joe Friday, serial number 2288, age 15. Ready, Joe? Hmm? I mean, Cameron Boy's sister. She's waiting in oh. the next room. Yeah. Now, let's go. Is she taking it hard? Yeah. Morning, Miss Cameron. Good morning. We won't keep you long. Just a few routine questions. Yes, all right. Miss Cameron, how many are there in your family? There were three of us. Teddy, Mike, and me. Mother and father are dead. I work... Teddy and Mike go to school. I mean, Mike does. How old is your brother Mike, Miss Cameron? He's 14. You're the sole support of your two brothers? Yes. Do you have any idea who the boys were your brother Ted used to run around with? I don't know them by name. I remember seeing a couple of them once or twice. Mike would know, I think. He and Ted were pretty close, brothers. Do you know if Ted mixed with a gang of kids down on Spring Street? Maybe Mike would know that. Sergeant Teddy wasn't a bad boy. He wasn't a bum. None of us are. I tried to raise the boys like Ma told me. It wasn't easy. We made out. Yes, I understand, Miss Cameron. My salary didn't have too much, but we got by. Yeah. I figured on getting married. I'm 31. It'd be good for the boys, especially Teddy. He's dead, isn't he? Yeah. I couldn't be in two places at once. Hold a job and watch the kids. But that's why I thought maybe your husband... I'm sorry to press, Miss Cameron. Do you think your brother Mike can tell us about that Spring Street gang? No, Mike would know. Where can we find him? Staying at a friend's house. I got the address in my bag. 
Here. That 2514. I don't write numbers too well. Thank you, Miss Cameron. You've been very helpful. I'll get somebody to drive you home. Oh, do I have to go? Would it be all right if I just sit here for a while? That's all right. I'm tired. Real tired. 2514 West Serrano Street. That was the address Barbara Cameron had given us. It was the home of Mr. and Mrs. Jean Brewer, high school friends of the dead boy's sister. We talked to Mike Cameron. He told us that his brother Teddy had been running around with a gang down on Spring Street. He identified Ramsey Soda Fountain as the hangout. It was 2.25 p.m. when we got back to Georgia Street Juvenile Bureau. Hi, guy. Juvenile Bureau, Romero. Yeah, hold on, I'll call him. You, Joe. Thanks. Friday. Joe, this is Canfield in burglary. Yeah, Homer. You're working that Cameron case, aren't you? Yeah. I just got a report on one you might be interested in, out of the same neighborhood. Distillery prowl. What do you got on it? Looks like a juvenile M.O. They got away with seven cases of scotch whiskey. Expensive stuff. Okay, we'll hop on it. Buback Warehouse, Crocker at 7th. Miss Elizabeth Rice was the auditor in charge at the Buback Warehouse. We located her on the mezzanine office row. It was her job to keep a running inventory on all incoming and outgoing liquor stock. She knew her job well. As you know, Sergeant Friday, each and every bottle of distilled spirits carries a United States internal revenue stamp. Yes, ma'am. Each stamp carries a serial number together with the name of the firm to whom the stamps are issued. Well, Miss Rice, in the stuff that's missing, the stamp on each bottle carries the case number. Is that right? That's right. Now, what did I tell you? Oh, yes, I have it right here. Seven cases of high-grade blended scotch whiskey. Now, I have a bottle identical to those in the missing cases. Yes, I see. Now, if you'll just look here. Yes, ma'am. The number on this stamp here, 36A227-9956, followed by the firm name. Uh, could you give us the numbers of the stolen cases? Now, I have them typed out for you right here. Seven cases, 12 bottles to the case, Canada Dry Incorporated, four of the red label and three of the black label, Johnny Walker. All right, thank you very much, Miss Wright. And you think that this might be a juvenile case, Sergeant? Yes, ma'am, we do. Seven cases, that's close to $600, isn't it? We've lost a great deal more than that, Sergeant. The insurance company makes up for the liquor loss. Yes, ma'am. Those youngsters, who makes up for them? Ben and I left the Bubeck warehouse with a list of serial numbers of the seven cases of stolen liquor. We headed back for the juvenile bureau. We figured that there was a strong possibility that the Spring Street gang was responsible for the warehouse liquor theft. How were they disposing of the stolen property? That was the key question we had to answer. Ben and I had a hunch and a tip from an informant that the young gang was operating under the guidance of a fence, a man or woman whose job it is to dispose of stolen property. The gang members were close to Ramsey at the soda fountain. Ramsey was the logical suspect. All right, now suppose they did steal the liquor. Suppose Ramsey's a fence. What's he done with the stuff? I don't think he's turned it this fast, if he's turned it at all. He wouldn't keep it at the soda fountain, no liquor license. And we've been around too much. He wouldn't keep it in his house. He lives in the rear of the fountain. It's too hot. Only leaves one other location that we know about. His brother's place in the valley. It was five minutes to ten when we turned left off Ventura Boulevard onto Sepulveda. Ramsey's brother had a small farm about a mile and a half off the highway. It was a modest white frame house planted squarely in the center of an acre of ground. 
An unpaved driveway led off to the left of the house to the garage. Pull up here, huh? Yeah, okay. Yeah, it looks kind of quiet, no lights. Let's go. Mud sticks to everything. Now, where's the doorbell? Oh, here it is. You got your flashlight? Yeah, what? Here's a note somebody left. Oh, it's on the bum again. You gotta strike a match. Okay. Can you hold it a little closer? Can you read it? Yeah. Harry, wife and I have gone to the drive-in theater. Before you put the truck away, get three... Can you hold that match closer? Oh, no. Wait a minute. Uh, Yeah. Get three cases out of the garage and take them into town. Ed is waiting. Please try to make it by 11.30 tonight. Let's see. It's signed George. The address is here. And there's a garage. Yeah, come on. Three cases. Could be eggs, Joe. If it is, we wasted a trip. Out of matches, Joe. All right, here, use mine. What was that? Checking. Uh, come on. See anything? No. There goes the light. Just a minute, I'll strike another one. You can save your matches. We found it. We found five cases of scotch whiskey on the floor of the garage. We checked the serial numbers against the warehouse list. They matched. We went back to the car and called communications. We had an immediate stakeout placed on George Ramsey's place, and then we headed back for the city. It was 11.20 p.m. when we got to the address we found on the note. It's about time, Harry. Hello, Ramsey. We can do without the music. What's your problem this time? Hey, you're almost out of scotch, Ramsey. Serial numbers check out, Joe. Sorry I can't offer you a drink. We're too old to drink here, aren't we, Ramsey? Where's your phone? You want to invite somebody? You can see we're out of booze. You got a phone? In the hall. Ben, call the office. Yeah. All right, what's it all about? We've been out to your brother's place. What happened to the other two cases? You drink them here? I gave it to the kids. You're looking at me like that for, Sergeant. Anything wrong, Eddie? Party's over, kid. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On June 5th, 1949, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 74, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Edward and George Ramsey were tried and convicted in Superior Court of receiving stolen property. After serving their terms as prescribed by law in the state penitentiary, they will be returned to the county jail where they will serve a one-year term for contributing to the delinquency of minors. You have just heard Dragnet, a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of acting chief of police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Honoring the city of Greenwich, state of Connecticut, and the men who make up the Greenwich Police Department, another of America's great law enforcement agencies. 
One of these men, Chief John M. Gleason, FBI National Police Academy graduate, who dedicates his life to making yours more secure. Fatima Cigarettes, the best of long cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet from Los Angeles. Welcome back. It's the little things that made Dragnet such a phenomenal program. I think today's episode was a solid story, but to me the highlight of the episode was Friday making out the death report of the gang member who tried to break in and got shot. It was just working through a report, but Jack Webb read it with this great mix of trying to be professional but also with some moments of world weariness and sadness at the pointless loss of a young life. And it also was kind of a callback to that conversation they'd had with the father at the hospital. They were not just trying to be difficult or telling you how to live your life. They were warning you of what was a real danger. And uh, this also goes to one of those things that I think so many people fundamentally either twist or misunderstand uh, about Dragnet, particularly like if you're making fun of it. Because, you know, people will say, you know, Dragnet was just be like, all these, you know, you kids, you just got need to go ahead and straighten up, fly right. And, you know, it, it's a series that came down on young folks like a ton of bricks. No, not at all. The series was more often addressing warnings to parents. There's something that, you know, can be pleasing about uh, media that puts others in their place. You know, if you've got whatever preferences you have, there can be something pleasing about watching news that shows, wow, other people and other groups that are not me have really got problems and they need to straighten things out. And these people, there's what's wrong with the world. The problem is that whatever their faults, they probably aren't watching or listening what you are. Or essentially experiencing something that's about them, but it's made for you so that you feel right. It's not going to do anything about their behavior because they're not ever going to pay attention to it. And I think that Webb knew that, the average juvenile delinquent is not going to watch or listen to Dragnet. But a lot of parents did. And if you've got an adult audience, maybe you can use what you have to get them to understand some things, get them to change some of what they do. And again, you have to do it in a way that doesn't come off as excessively preachy. It is a difficult balance, but I think Dragnet did some good work in that way. And one thing I liked about this episode in particular is that it didn't pretend that it's always the parents or guardians' fault. While there are parents like the dad who showed up at the hospital and argued with the police that are just kind of willfully out of touch or, you know, you had those 
apathetic parents who are just like, yeah, yeah, let me go ahead and I'll listen to your lecture, cop. But then when I get home, I'm going to tell them that what they really did wrong was getting caught and disrupting my life and schedule. There are other situations with, you know, and I think the sister of that boy who died was a great example of that because, you know, she was right. Uh, she couldn't be everywhere all at once. She was the sole breadwinner, and she was also supposed to somehow parent her own siblings and hopefully find someone who could uh, be a father figure to them. And not all cases have easy answers. And it's also a sad commentary, as we saw in the episode, that of all the parents and guardians, that she was the only one who the story reflects had any remorse or any concern, and she didn't really do anything wrong. It was just such a tragic set of circumstances. Well, now we turn to listener comments and feedback, and we have a couple of comments on... Uh, YouTube, a great job, and an emoji, and appreciate all those comments on YouTube. They all help with the stats. Even the mean ones technically help, um, though I'd just rather not deal with them. But then we've got a, a good, uh, thoughtful one. Uh, this one comes from the episode, The Big Lamp, uh, and listener writes, I always liked the Barney Phillips episode. I thought he should have been hired full-time after the passing of Barton Yarborough. Well, thanks so much. Uh, appreciate the comment. And Barney Phillips may have ended up taking over as the full-time replacement if Dragnet had stayed radio only. But it was thought he looked too much like Jack Webb for it to work on television. And I guess, in some ways, they're similar types. Uh, it, I never had any difficulty telling them apart. I'd never be like, oh my goodness, they're twins. But I think that particularly with Frank Smith and Bill Ginnon, there were, was definitely a greater contrast in their physical appearance to Jack Webb than with Barney Phillips. But thanks so much for the comments. Now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. And thank you to Rich, Patreon supporter since March of 2020, currently supporting the podcast at the Shamus level of $4 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support, Rich. And that will do it for today. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software. If you're enjoying the podcast on YouTube, be sure to like the video, subscribe to the channel, and mark the notification bell. As well as leave a comment. All those things uh, really do help the channel to grow. We will be back next Saturday with another episode of Dragnet. Join us back here tomorrow for Public Domain Video Theater and an episode of U.S. Marshal, but our great detectives of old-time radio lineup returns on Monday with an episode of The Adventures of the Falcon, where... $100,000, just, just think of it. You think of it, Saunders, because that's as close as you're getting to it. What do you mean, George? Well, I tell you, friend, it's like this. The boys and I had a little talk. And you decided why split four ways, huh? 
Well, you catch on fast. Well, didn't you think I'd have anything to say about that? Well, I put away that gun, Saunders. Uh, yeah, Georgia was only clowning. Yes, I'll bet. You know, I'm a little surprised at you, Dixie. Uh, look, if, if we were going to double-cross you, you think we'd send you for the dough? Sure, that doesn't make sense, does it? But, uh, no, don't move, Palsy. Just drop the gun. Nice going, Martinez. Well, Mr. Smart Guy, what do you say now? That's enough, Georgie. Go on, Saunders. Bait it. All right. Gentlemen, if this little get-together hasn't been pleasant, it... It has. I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.